Let's pray. Father, may that, what we have just sung, genuinely be true of us. May it be our heart's desire to worship you now, even through your word. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love, hands and feet to obey Jesus, your one and only Son, our one and only King. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I encourage you to to open your copies of the Scriptures this morning to Mark chapter 7. To Mark chapter 7, and as you find your place there, if you'll turn to back, just back one book, the first book of the New Testament, to Matthew 15. And, And this morning, we're covering a story in Mark 7 that is also highlighted in Matthew 15. And Matthew 15 gives us just a little bit more information because as we've learned about Mark, Mark is always in a hurry. He's always in a hurry to tell us the story. And I think Mark is in a hurry this morning because this woman who falls at the feet of Jesus, he wants us to get to the end of the story because the end of the story is so good. But Matthew fills in some of the blanks for us that really help us to be able to grasp the meaning of this text this morning. Now, as you're finding your place there, there's something I do need to say this morning as I begin, and it's about last Sunday, because last Sunday, during my sermon, several of you caught that I said at one point in the sermon, I was referencing Aunt Sally and Aunt George. Anybody catch that? Because I had three or four people talk to me about that this week, and I appreciate those of you who caught that, because you're listening so intently Um, I want you to know that every so often I throw in something like that on purpose. (laughs) Just to see if you really are listening and to surprise you. And you know, one of the reasons, in all seriousness, one of the reasons I love the Bible is that it is in the business of surprising us. Like all the way back in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, after they eat the forbidden fruit, you'll remember that God comes running after them. And if that were the first time, if it were the first time we were reading the Bible, we'd be like, "Uh uh-oh, this is not going to end well. But then we read that God does not come running after them to condemn them, but to redeem them and rescue them. We're surprised. And then we go later on in the book of Genesis, the, the very first book of the Bible, and we learn about Joseph, and we learn that his brothers hate him because he's dad's favorite, and they're jealous of him. And so they sell him into, they, they, they really sell him to a group of Ishmaelites who in turn sell him into slavery in Egypt. And we're like, you know, this is not good. Again, this story is not going to end well, but then God surprises us, and he blesses Joseph in Egypt and until he becomes second in command in the entire land, kind of like a vice pharaoh. And God uses Joseph to rescue his family during a famine and to save them from starvation. God surprises us again. And that's why Joseph can say he's surprised too, because he says to his brothers near the end of his life, listen, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good for me. Our God is in the business of surprising us, and that's true right here in Mark chapter 7 as well as Matthew chapter 15, where we read this beginning in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. 
And from there, that is from Galilee, in northern Israel, Jesus arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of our God and this is the Son of God. Demonstrating the power and grace of God in real life. This is a story that is packed with surprises. We're surprised by where this takes place and who professes, we're surprised by who professes faith in Jesus. We're surprised by what we read in Matthew 15 that initially Jesus appears to be indifferent to this woman and her need. And those big surprises set us up for the big idea in this text, which is this. Great faith in Jesus is a faith that never quits. It's a faith that never gives up. It's a faith that hopes against hope. Even when the odds are stacked against you, you don't stop believing because your object, the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, is worthy of a never quitting, never giving up, never giving out kind of faith like the faith of this Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. And to get, really, to really get why Jesus praises the faith of this woman, we need to remember this, that the, that the story, every story in the Bible occurs within a context. Now, someday when I am dead and gone, and you think back upon my ministry here at Bethel, there's something I want you to remember And that's this, that Pastor Ken taught us, when it comes to understanding the Bible, context matters. Would you agree with that? Context matters, big time. It's true in all of life, right? So how many of you in this room are Chicago Cubs fans? That's what I was afraid of, all right? Now, if you're a Chicago Cubs fan, you need to understand why the 2016 World Series championship wasn't just a World Series championship, it was the World Series championship. You know why? Because it had been 108 years, and during that time, the St. Louis, never mind, I know I overuse sports illustrations, so let me turn to classical music. Any classical music lovers in the room this morning? Okay, several of you. Um, How many of you would say that Handel's Messiah is one of the greatest music pieces ever composed? Handel's Messiah. Did you know that Handel composed the entire Messiah in 24 days? Any of you heard of a composer named Ludwig von Beethoven? Did you know that he composed his entire Ninth Symphony, which we know as Ode to Joy, while he was nearly deaf? Here's my point. 
when you know the context, stories come to life. They take on a whole new meaning, like right here in Mark 7. There's a whole lot of important contextual information in this text, including when and where this all goes down. Because Jesus, remember, is just coming off a rather tense confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders, the theological heavyweights of his day, the scribes and Pharisees, who confront Jesus because he is not playing by their rules. He is not upholding their religious traditions, especially the tradition of ceremonial cleanliness, which is all about how Jews interact with Gentiles and Samaritans. And Mark is highlighting here then the fact that the Pharisees are continuing to build their case against Jesus. And so in this text, in Mark 7, after the confrontation with Jesus, we have to understand that the cross is really beginning to take shape for Jesus. He knows what's coming. And so he leaves Israel to get some alone time with his disciples to prepare them for his impending death. And so they head 40 miles northwest of Galilee into Phoenicia to the twin cities of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon have a significant Old Testament history because Tyre was the hometown of a woman named Queen Jezebel. You remember her? Everybody remember Queen Jezebel? She's one of the bad girls of the Bible. She not only introduces Baal worship to Israel as King Ahab's wife, but she wants to kill God's prophet Elijah after he defeats the 450 prophets of Baal. And so Tyre and Sidon, we know, are spiritually dark places. They have a notorious history. And we would expect then Jesus and his disciples to be able to get some downtime there while they do the whole verbo thing and find a house to rent. But then a desperate woman shows up. So while the Jewish religious leaders are building a case to crucify Jesus, here's a Gentile woman who's taken with Jesus and falling at the feet of Jesus. And Mark is emphasizing that because he wants us to know that there are historical and cultural and even geographical dynamics at play in this scene. It's a woman who approaches Jesus. And that's significant because the Pharisees are well known for not valuing women, especially Gentile women. And that's, that's this woman because she's, she's a Syrophoenician by birth. And so she's on the Pharisees' hit list, if you will. She's on the Pharisees' do not touch list. But there's more. Because if you were to flip over to Matthew 15, verse 22, we would read that this woman is a Canaanite by lineage. And that's a big deal because in the Old Testament, the Canaanites, as we've been learning on Wednesday nights from Genesis chapters 9 and 10, the Canaanites are a cursed people. God had instructed the Jews to wipe the Canaanites off the face of the earth. And so the Pharisees would consider this woman a leftover from a cursed race. She's unclean. She's a total outsider by gender, by birth, by genealogy, and by religion. In other words, stay a long way away from her. She doesn't fit in with God's people. And Mark wants us to see that true 
excuse me, true faith is found in the most surprising places and in the hearts of the most unexpected people. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning because you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I don't belong here. I I don't fit in with these people. I don't fit in with the religious crowd. You feel like an outsider. Maybe it's where you're from. Maybe it's what you're wearing. Maybe it's something you've done. And I want you to know this morning that we are so glad you are here. And that there is good news in this text for you. It's, it's the same news that Jesus himself announces in John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world. God so loved all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And so he gives his only begotten son so that whosoever... All kinds of people in all kinds of places who believe on Jesus can have salvation and eternal life. One of the coolest experiences I've ever had took place in a concrete room in a medium security prison in the rolling hills of Tennessee. I remember walking into the prison, a medium security prison with my father, who was leading his church's prison ministry, and he asked me to come along with him and to preach. And I remember walking into that prison through fence after fence, past guard after guard, And stepping into the pod with 144 prisoners and the door slamming behind me. It is one of the weirdest feelings I've ever experienced. And then to walk into a room, a concrete room with two windows way up high and to have more than 40 prisoners come into that room to sing praises to God and to hear his word preached. It is an experience and a memory I'll take with me to my grave. And to open God's word to them. And then afterwards, one by one, they come to the front after sitting there the whole time on the edge of their seats. They don't have to be here. They aren't required to come to chapel or to church. And yet they come and they listen like it's the final sermon they're ever going to hear. And they sing and they love to sing the song, I'll Fly Away. Because part of that song says that that one day from prison bars we'll fly. And then they come up afterwards and they thank me for coming. They thank me for preaching. And they share with me their stories. That they love Jesus. And they follow Jesus. And they belong to Jesus. 
If there's ever a group of men in this nation that would not fit in, it's that group of men in that medium security prison in the middle of the state of Tennessee. And yet they belong to Jesus. Do you? He said, I don't fit in. Neither do they. But they've been welcomed in by the grace of Jesus, and he will welcome you in as well. For God so loved the world. Here's how he loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever, all kinds of people in all kinds of places, including a Syrophoenician woman of Canaanite descent, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Will you come to Jesus? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Would you come to Jesus by faith this morning? And and maybe you're here this morning, maybe you are a Christian. And you have non-Christians in your life. And by the way, that should be true. You have relationships with them. They're family members. They're friends. But honestly, you're not praying for them to come to Jesus because you don't see how it could ever happen. They don't fit your preconceived notions of what a Christian would ever look like. Wow. Wow. Neither does this woman. Or how about if, how about the people who walk into this room on Sundays who aren't members of this church and it's their first time here and they walk in and they don't look like us, they don't dress like us, they don't talk like us, they don't hang out where we hang out during the week. We look at them and think, oh, there's an outsider. They don't belong. Do we isolate and insulate ourselves from them? Because Jesus doesn't. We're about to discover that in this text. How do we respond? Do we find ourselves to be a lot more like the Pharisees and and what the disciples are about to say than we do and how Jesus ultimately responds to this woman. This woman is totally unqualified. In fact, her only qualification is that she recognizes her deep need for Jesus and she believes that he's the only answer to her need. She's a mom with a daughter who's terrorized by a demon. And we remember back in Mark chapter 5, we remember what demon-possessed people look like. You remember the man who's hanging out in the graveyard, cutting himself, running around naked, terrorizing anyone who comes close. Now imagine that's your daughter now. That's what she's dealing with in your home 24-7 I mean, this is the girl you brought into the world. This is, this is the girl you swaddled. This is the one everyone oohed and awed over as you rocked her to sleep. But things are different now. A demon has hijacked your girl and commandeered her body. 
And you as a mom are desperate. Because there's nothing more gut-wrenching for a parent than when your child is in trouble. Right, parents? I remember back to when our daughter Mary was five. And she was very sick. And for 18 hours, she couldn't keep anything down, including water. And so we knew she was in trouble. And so we, we went to the ER and we're sitting there in the waiting room. And I was holding her in my lap. She was severely dehydrated. Her body was limp. Her skin was ashen. Her eyes were lifeless and sunken as we waited for the medical team to begin treatment. It was the most helpless, gut-wrenching feeling I've ever experienced. But there's no medical treatment for this girl. There's no doctor who can help. There's no priest who can free her. Jesus is her only hope. And somehow, somewhere, this mother had heard that Jesus possesses power over demons. She knows when she comes to him that she has no credentials or qualifications to come. All she has is guts. And that's enough. And so in desperate faith, she pushes through the cultural barriers and falls at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, I believe you can free my daughter from her demon. Please, 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 Jesus, have mercy on me. And like the Energizer Bunny, this woman doesn't stop. She keeps going and going and going. That's the verb tense right here in verse 26. And Matthew's gospel says that not only does she keep going and going and going and pleading and pleading and pleading, But Matthew tells us that she refers to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the son of David. So she has faith in what Jesus can do because she knows who Jesus is. He's the king. He's the Lord over all things and all people in all places, including every demon everywhere. Jesus, Jesus, I know you are king. I know you are a Lord over all. And I know I'm a nobody. But Jesus, I really need your mercy. And her passionate, perpetual pleas are met with a surprising response from Jesus. Because let's just be honest this morning, I think at least this is true of me, as we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark, we we think we know Jesus. Right? We've followed Jesus around the Gospel of Mark for nine months of Sundays now. We've seen his compassion in action. We've seen his mercy up close. And so we would expect Jesus to respond by saying to this woman, woman, go your way. Your faith has made your daughter well. But Jesus does not say that. In fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that in response to this woman's perpetual pleas, Jesus says nothing at all. Silence. Now, if you're married to a man... You've experienced this, right? I mean, you're talking to them, you're pleading with them, you're saying, I have a question for you, and your man is somewhere else, right? And I see a bunch of women going like this to their husbands. Joanna and our kids would tell you that I can be that way. Somebody says something to me, I'm preoccupied mentally, or, and this is really bad, um, 
Joanna will say something to me and I'm not tuned in, but I give an answer. Anybody ever do that? Okay. And then later, Joanna will say to me, Kenneth. And anytime she says, Kenneth, I know it's going to be bad. She said, I I talked to you about this and you even gave me an answer. But I don't remember. My head was somewhere else. I wasn't tuned in. But listen, you know, that is never true of Jesus. Jesus is always perfectly focused. He is always acutely tuned in to every situation, which is why his silence here shocks us. And let's be honest, God's silence is one of the big things we struggle with when we pray. And nothing happens. Like God's head is somewhere else, or he's preoccupied with someone else or something else, or he's just flat out ignoring us. Like he's not even there or he doesn't really care. We ask God to give us a child. And month in, month out, there's no pregnancy. We pray for God to intervene in a marriage that's, that's going bad. And things don't get better, they get worse. We pray for God to relieve the pressure at work or to take away the chronic pain or to, or, or to bring back the wayward child. And there's no response. Just silence. And we can get frustrated with God. We can get angry with God. We can question the love of God or we can doubt the power of God. Listen, we've all been there. Even a man of great faith like Martin Luther. Martin Luther leaves his house one morning and he's discouraged and his wife Catherine asks, Martin, what's wrong? And he says, well, I think God's dead. I think God's dead. And when Luther arrives back home that evening, he finds the curtains closed and the house totally dark and Catherine is decked out in all black clothing. And he says to her, Catherine, who died? And she says, well, Martin, you said God died. Guys who aren't married in this room, find a woman like that. Because God's silence is not a sign of his demise. It's that his silence serves a greater good and a bigger purpose than an immediate answer to our prayer. And that's what's happening between Jesus and this woman. Jesus' silence is setting the stage to showcase her faith because when Jesus isn't responding, she doesn't stop believing. She persists in faith with more begging and more pleading. And that's why Matthew tells us, and that's when Matthew tells us, that the disciples step in and say, Okay, Jesus, enough already. You've got to shut down this woman. Because we're up here. We're up here in Phoenicia. We're up here in Gentile country trying to fly under the radar. And she's going to blow our cover. But Jesus doesn't silence her. He doesn't shoo her away. Instead, he says this. Let, and we find this in Matthew's account, by the way. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's also here in Matthew. And again, we're, we're, excuse me, in Mark. And again, we are, we're taken back, taken aback by Jesus. It's like Jesus is out in left field here, like his answer isn't at all related to this woman's situation. She's talking about a demon while Jesus wants to talk about dogs. 
So what's going on here? Is Jesus just having a bad day? You know, is this kind of a hangover from the confrontation with the Pharisees and Jesus is just kind of out of it? Well, let me explain. You know, we're a society that for the most part, we love dogs, right? Any dog lovers in the house this morning? Any dog lovers? Well, back in New Testament times, dogs were, were more of the wild scavenger. They were coyotes. By the way, I, I saw a coyote on the way to church this morning. And so, in Jesus' day, to call someone a dog was an insult. In fact, the Jews often referred to the Gentiles as, dog, as dogs because they considered the Gentiles unclean. But Jesus here is not referring to the Gentiles or this woman as wild street dogs. He's actually telling a parable. He's painting a word picture here. We know that because Jesus uses a very unusual Greek term for dogs. It's a word that really should be translated puppies. You're like, man, this this story takes on a whole new meaning now with puppies, right? So Jesus isn't talking about those wild scavenger dogs, the coyote-like dogs. He's talking about domesticated family pets like we have. And so Jesus is saying to this mother, Listen, you know how family dinner time goes. The family sits down, they eat at the table, and the puppy hangs out where? Under the table. But as a mom, you don't do, you don't do this. You don't take the children's food and feed it to the puppy. And I know what you're thinking. It's probably the same thing she's thinking. Now, I don't do that, but the children do that, Right? Well, you need to hang with me here because Jesus tells us the point he's making. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So with the whole dog illustration, the parable, Jesus is describing his mission. He's telling the disciples who've just questioned him, and he's telling this woman who is pleading with him, that his ministry is first to the people of Israel. It's what we read in John 1 verse 11, that Jesus came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came to fulfill the promises God made to the Jewish people. So they are the first priority, but they aren't the only priority. Because after Jesus dies and rises again, he will say to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. And we read at the end of the story in Revelation 5 verse 9 that people from every tribe and every language and every nation will be gathered around the throne of the Lamb Jesus, bowing in worship before him. Amen? And so Jesus is not insulting this woman He's simply saying this with a parable and a picture. He's saying, I want you to know there's an order to my mission here. I'm going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles later. So how do we respond when Jesus doesn't immediately give us what we ask for? How do we respond when we don't understand what God is doing? I mean, this woman could have wallowed in self-pity. She could have lashed out irrationally at the disciples. She could have started some mama drama and played on Jesus' emotions. But no, instead, she grabs a hold of Jesus with a tenacious, never-quitting, never-giving-up kind of faith. 
In fact, I believe this is one of the greatest confessions of faith in the entire Bible. Because this mama doesn't demand her rights. She doesn't even accuse Jesus of using a racial slur. She doesn't demand that Jesus modify his mission just to accommodate her. Instead, she latches onto that word dog and goes along with Jesus' parable just to profess her faith in Jesus. And she says this. She says, yes, Lord. I love that. That's how she begins her great statement of faith. Yes, Lord. You know, we could spend a whole lot of time right now applying those two words to where we live. Yes, Lord. Are there areas of our lives where we can't join this woman right now this morning and say, yes, Lord, whatever you say, I surrender all. Everything about me Everything. It's your will, not mine. Because this woman says, I may not have a place at the table because I'm not a Jew, but I believe there's more than enough grace on that table for the entire world. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so, Jesus, I'm not asking for these crumbs because it's, it's what I deserve because I'm good. I'm asking for these crumbs that I don't deserve because you are good. There is more life-giving power, Jesus, in the crumbs of your grace than in this world's most lavish banquet. Do you believe that for you? That there's more soul-satisfying power in the crumbs of Jesus' grace than there is in anything and everything this world could offer. Your career, your family, your 401k or 403b. Is His grace just a crumb? Is it enough for you to satisfy your soul forever? Yes. Yes, it is. And we hear that and we see that from the most unlikeliest place and the most unlikeliest person. And that's why Jesus turns to her, this woman, and says, because of your faith, because of that kind of faith, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And I can imagine, now Mark doesn't tell us this and neither does Matthew, but I would love to think that this woman thanks Jesus, maybe even with an embrace. And that'd be huge coming off the confrontation Jesus just had with the Pharisees where they would never touch a Gentile woman. And then she turns and begins running toward home. And she throws open the front door and runs to her daughter's room. And she finds her daughter lying in bed, which is normal for a teenage, teenager, right, parents? And that's the point. Her daughter's normal again. She's at peace. 
finally able to rest, finally free, because her mother, broken and desperate, took the crumbs that fell from the table of Jesus' grace, and it was more than enough for her and her daughter. So what does this look like for us? What are the takeaways from this scene for us? How can we apply this in our everyday lives? Let me give you three ways this morning. Number one, from this scene, we remember we remember that this world's brokenness is everywhere and affects everyone. I mean, Jesus is constantly encountering desperate people in desperate situations, and we see here that isn't just in his Jewish world, it's in our Gentile world too. Even today, right here this morning. It's a reminder that none of us is exempt from suffering. We're all broken people living in a broken world, and so when you encounter a situation like this woman... Remember that suffering is not singling you out. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says that trouble and difficulty are common to the human experience. So don't let your suffering lead you then to despair. Because secondly, the desperation of our situation is intended to lead us to Jesus. Please listen, please, please, please. The suffering we experience isn't accidental or coincidental. It is purposeful. It's the hand of God gently moving us to Jesus. So when things go wrong in our world, we don't shrug and give up because faith does not flinch in the face of obstacles. Faith pushes through the obstacles by casting all our cares upon him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5 verse 7. So just like this mom, we can say, yes, Lord, even when your answer seems slow in coming, we will wait on you. Yes, Lord, even when your answer isn't the one we expect, we will trust in you. And we'll say that because, number three, life's obstacles we learn that life's obstacles are opportunities for us to persevere in faith. In this scene, we learn that faith shines brightest in life's darkest moments. Because God is able to use life's most painful things, like a demon-possessed daughter, to spark the flame of faith in our hearts. Listen, please listen. God does not waste our suffering ever. He uses every heartache and every tear to construct and perfect our faith in Him. And that's why it's a faith that never quits. That's why it's a faith that never gives up. That's why it's a faith that never gives out. It's a faith that hopes against hope. Even when the odds are stacked against us so that we don't stop believing. That's what we discover, and that's when we discover that those crumbs of grace are enough for us. And it's then that we hear the voice of Jesus say to us what he says to this woman in Matthew 15, verse 28. A woman, great is your faith. And it's in that moment that finally we discover it's all because of Jesus. How great is his grace. Amen.
Father, may you take your word and implant it deep within our hearts that we may trust you with a persistent faith, never quitting, never giving up, never giving out, even when the whole world is stacked against us. May we see the power of your grace. So I just want to ask this morning, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a believer in Jesus? If not, would you this morning become a believer in Jesus? You say, how do I do that? Just right now, right where you are, even if you feel like an outsider, even if you feel like you don't fit in, you can cry out in faith to Jesus. And if you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved right now. Would you come to Jesus? Would you believe and be saved? And Christian, are you trusting? Are you believing? Keep persisting in faith. Jesus is enough. His grace is sufficient for you. And so I thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen.